Reset Frontline today, joined by one of my friends, Dr. Alfred Sacchetti, a chairman, emergency medicine, Our Lady of the Lord's Medical Center at Camden, New Jersey, assistant clinical professor, section of emergency medicine, Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And, you know, I think it's to go without saying, for most people, you, know, you are one of the faces for ASAP, the American College of Emergency Physician for Pediatrics. And that's why I brought you here, because you've okay. got several lectures here today, uh, I mean, over the last few days here at ASAP 15 about pediatrics, and we want to talk about that. Sure. Um, so, Dr. Schetti, first, give us a little background, how you got interested in it, and what's got you uh, into the pediatric aspect of emergency medicine. Well, it, it goes way, way back, because I'm, I'm way older than you. Uh, when I started out, there really was no such thing as a peds emergency medicine person. I, and to this day, I remain a general emergency physician. I'm not a pediatric emergency physician. But it was ingrained in us in our training that if you are going to be an emergency physician, you're taking care of kids. And so I, I developed an interest in that uh, over and above just my, my traditional interest in, in the adult patients. And it just kind of stayed with me. Um, but I think for me, the main thing is you don't have to do a fellowship to be an outstanding clinician when you take care of children. And you know, we, we push our shop, our shops you know, sees a lot of children. Um, we don't have uh, any inpatient pediatric service anymore that closed, but we still see about a quarter kids. And we really pride ourselves that we can do as well in the care of those kids as anybody else. And that's what we see is a lot of a lot of the hospitals we deal with. Mine's personally about 10% pediatrics. Um, a lot of folks are somewhere between that 10 and 30% pediatric volume. But it's still one of those things that gives emergency phys uh, physicians a great deal of angst, concern, especially when the youngest of the young come in. What is that What is that you see and what are the main things a hospital or emergency department a physician can do to be ready or be more comfortable with kids? I think that it, there's a couple things. One is you are never going to see as many pediatric codes as you do adult codes. So you're never, they're never going to be as comfortable with them. But when you look at it, children are just small adults. They really are. There's, it's not like a two-year-old is a tadpole and when they turn to be 18 all of a sudden they turn into a, a frog they, they are but what's different about them is there's a, a unique physiology to their age there's a unique anatomy to their age but we're emergency physicians we're used to that we know that there's a different physiology in a pregnant patient than in a non-pregnant patient we know that the anatomy of someone who's had some surgery is going to be different than the anatomy of someone who d doesn't. We, we know absolutely that mental status is going to change from when you're five to when you're 18 to when you're 70. So it, the, the fact that it's a child just means that we add the age into all the other parameters we consider when we take care of them and we basically move along in that direction. So for an emergency physician, a child is just a small adult. We, we, we really shouldn't change much. And the other thing to recognize is we do much more critical care in adults than we do in children. But even the biggest of the children's hospitals doesn't see near as many critically ill children as we do critically ill adults in a garden variety community hospital. And you can take all of that critical care knowledge, your airway management, your vascular access, all of that and transfer it down to a child. So if you, have to, you do have to intubate a child, you recognize the anatomic differences, you recognize the physiological differences, but in the end, it's a matter of putting the laryngoscope in, moving the, t the, the tongue over, lifting up the epiglottis, and putting the tube through the cords, something we do routinely in older patients. And so what are some of the, um, you know, we went to your lecture talking about some of the things with critical care, especially in um, the neonatal um, or infant fevers. 
where are we now and what's changing in the evaluation of that uh, sepsis or uh, bacterial infections in children? But a couple of things have changed. Bacterial infections in children is they're just going away. I mean, it, it is just a real testament to, to the power of vaccines that you know we don't see the Haemophilus influenzas and the pneumococcal uh, septicemias that we used to see before. And it's when you know when I started out, you know every couple months you put a needle in a kid's back and get pus out. Now. You know, we rarely, rarely, rarely see meningitis in children, and nobody does. It's an adult disease now. And so, you know, that's changed dramatically. But it depends on the age group. It's still anybody less than six weeks of age, and some people take the cutoff at eight weeks of age, but pretty much most people agree six weeks of age, whether they have a fever that you measured in the department, whether they have a fever that mom said they felt warm or mom measured the temperature at home, they get the septic workup. They get the, the uh, IV, the blood cultures, the urine culture, and for most places, still the, the, the spinal tap. That may be changing, but as of right now, they're still getting the spinal tap. If they are above 28 days of age and they meet, pick your criteria, the Philadelphia criteria, the Boston criteria, the Rochester criteria, everything comes back normal, basically, you can send that child home. Under 28 days of age with a fever, they still get admitted to the hospital. Uh, whether you put them on antibiotics or not is a discussion you have with your consultant. Some will put them on it, some won't, whether you add an antiviral to it, um, just in case they've got a herpetic infection. Again, deal that with your consultant. But under six weeks of age, you're still doing the full septic workup. And to be perfectly honest with you, I'm happy with that. I don't want to use my clinical judgment in a 28-day-old child. You know, I, I want to feel that I've checked everything, I've uncovered every stone. The procedures aren't that hard. I mean, it's, it's way easier to do a spinal tap on a 28-day-year-old than it is on a you know 68-year-old person. And at the end, when I'm done that case, I know that I've left no stone unturned. So I'm comfortable with that right now. But that doesn't, in, so even in that less than 28 days, though, even if you have a source, so you find a urinary tract infection, that doesn't preclude the rest of the workup, does it? No. And the bottom line is, you, you're really on a short time frame there. So you don't want to do, okay, let me check and see if it's a urine, and if it's urine, I'm not going to do anything else. You basically do everything in parallel. And for the most part, a full septic workup in a neonate is probably going to be 15 minutes at most. Um, and your time is going to be the, the LP. You know, you may have to help with the, the IV and God knows where um, the urethra is hidden in a six-week-old female. But, um, but you know, your, your time at the bedside isn't overwhelming that you can say, oh, I just can't do this. You have to do it. I mean, it's, it's you know, uh, the literature is very dogmatic about it. Don't dance around. Don't make excuses. Just do it and get it done. And that's uh, the important thing is, is to make sure that, one, you do get that done because it's just like, you know, we've had all these strep, I mean, all this sepsis encouragement for adults. Get in there, get things done quickly. And it's with kids, it's the same way. And a lot of the issues I see, one is knowing where everything is. And then two, taking two hours to get an IV or all those other things. It's one of those things you really need to um, get that knocked out. How do we make sure the emergency department's ready for these these kids when they come in? Well, I, I think the, the ASEP and the American Academy of Pediatrics put together, and I think the Emergency Nurse Association and other, and other people put the, um, the, the white paper together, um, care of the child in the emergency department. And that's got it's a, it's a wonderful um, paper, but it describes all the equipment you should have, you know, the recommendations on um, should have someone who looks over your pediatrics, both from the nursing and the physician standpoint of it. And what we found is, is um, in the last year or two, the Pediatric Readiness Project, where they went out and they surveyed all the emergency departments and saw what you had, was a real eye-opener for the emergency departments, because a lot of departments that thought they were prepared said, you know what? We didn't have a pediatric McGill, or we didn't have this sized ET tube. 
And a lot of people say, oh my God, we can never afford all that stuff. The reality of it is, if you bought every single thing that's on that list, aside from a monitor defibrillator and a pulse ox, which you already have, but just the, the disposable equipment, the ET tubes and those kind of things, you can get 100% of the stuff in there, including LMAs, all the different size laryngeal mask airways for the kids for under $1,000 for your department. Uh, so if you, if you look at that, it's like, you know what? And it's not like an ET tube expires. You're going to have it for a decade. So for 1000 bucks, you can make sure no matter what rolls into your department, you will have the equipment to take care of them. Now, the one thing I will tell you is um, there's an editorial, it, by the time this airs, it'll probably have come out in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. It says specifically, um, there is no excuse for an emergency department not to be prepared to take care of children. You know, th this concept of, well, you know, we're in a city and there's EDAPs over here, the emergency department's approved for pediatrics, and they're going to take care of the children. The truth of the matter is, yeah, the EMS squad knows where the EDAP is. They're going to take the patient there. But when a child is choking or a child is seizing, a parent's going to pick that child up. They don't have to wait for an ambulance. They can put him in the back of the car, and they're going to drive hellbent to the first big building they come to that has a red emergency sign in the driveway. And they're rolling into your place, whether you're an EDAP or not. And it makes no sense not to be prepared for that. You know, to say, well, you know, it's not our fault. We don't get that many children. Not an excuse. You, you, at any given time, at any given day, somebody's going to walk in there. And, and who the heck knows, you know, you've got a, a pregnant patient visiting their grandfather, and the next thing you know, they're delivering. So the, you are an emergency department. You should be prepared for emergencies. Well, and you mentioned the um, having the supervision, either nurse supervision, physician supervision, uh, ideally both, um, but making sure what we find a lot of places, and I've worked in the past, you know, that, that pack that pack for uh, the newborn or whoever was, was packed in 1982. And so there is, some, <laughs> there is some turnover in some of that stuff. You need to make sure that you have all the supplies there, where they're supposed to be. Everybody knows where they are. You have all the charts available because that's huge. You don't want to be sitting there having to pull out an app to try to calculate weights and medications. You need to have those, those tapes right there ready to go. Yeah, there, there's some newer things out there. Jim Broslow has a, a wonderful... Um, uh, uh, program now where he's, you know, the, the inventor of the Braslow tape, um, which goes one step further. And what it recognizes is that every medicine has a barcode on it. It's not unique to the hospital. It's unique to, to whatever the FDA or whatnot. And it, it says what's in the bottle, the concentration um, that's in there as well. So if it's a vial of ketamine, it'll know whether it's 50 milligrams for ML or 100 milligrams for ML. And what you can do is, you know, most of the hospitals have those computer on wheels now mm -hmm. that they go through bedside registration. They all have a scanner on them, a hand scanner. Well, that scanner, if you log into his um, uh, program, what you can do is at the bedside, all you do is say, I would like some epinephrine. And the, the nurse or whoever is doing that just picks up the vial, scans it, and it tells you the exact number of mls to draw up for that child so you the first time you open the program it says how much does the kid weigh put the tape on him and it's you know it's an eight kilogram kid whatever um and then all you have to do is every medicine you want you just scan that barcode and it says draw up 2.5 cc's of this draw up three cc's of that so there's none of that you know cross multiplying calculating on the the uh, the bed sheet because all what all you will ever get in a tape or a chart or anything else is how many milligrams but we all know now that the pharmacy bought this week whichever version they could get the cheapest. So last week you had something that was 100 milligrams for ML. This week you've got something that's 10 milligrams for ML. This takes all that mess out of there, and it makes it makes the resuscitations much, much, much less stressful, you know, when you do them. And it's got all the other information with size ET tubes, those kind of things as well. Um, but I think you make a good point, and that is, periodically you have to take the packs apart and. 
as part of your nursing checklist, it should be, you know, once a week, twice a week, somebody's assigned to go through that. And it's not that you're going to see the kids that frequently, but the real thing is it familiarizes the nursing staff with where to find it. So if I say I need McGill forceps and the nurse has never checked for the McGill forceps, they don't know, is it in the adult airway cart or is it in the peds airway cart or is it in just our airway cart? You know, where is it? Where do I find it? If, if periodically they have to go and once every month or so find the McGill forceps, they know where to find them then when you, when you need it in a, in a, in a crunch. And I think that's, that's huge because we see that even even with adult is yeah. when you're looking for something in a more difficult airway or an adjunct or something like that, even finding it so drilling, going through things because you may only see 5% kids, you may only have one pediatric code a year or two years, mm -hmm. but knowing where that stuff is may make that difference between a successful resuscitation and a complication or even unfortunately a death. Now is there anything else that's really this really changed over the last five to ten years in terms of pediatric care something for the providers out there that have been out there in community medicine and you're taking care of kid what's different your nose the no the nose is is the way to go this day for this at uh, this day and age for the kids for um, sedation and analgesia these the um, little atomizers those little white atomizers that you get you can put on the end of a syringe and it just kind of sprays and mist up up the nose has really changed how we approach um, sedation and analgesia in the kids you know, in the past, we we're always hesitant. It's like, oh, you know, I got to put an IV in the kid. You know, maybe I can just hold them down and do this. Now, with these atomizers, you can sedate any kid beautifully, control their pain. You know, so if you have the child, you know, and it, we use it a lot for simple things. Like, so the child comes in, they've obviously got a clavicle fracture. Well, go ahead and put the fentanyl in there, spray it up their nose. They don't care. Their, their fingers are always up there. What do they care if you put a, uh, an atomized up? Just spray it up their nose. You can give them great analgesia. You don't have to worry about them vomiting if you tried to give them, you know, 17 teaspoons of, of um, a syrup with, with um, uh, an opioid in it. You don't have to give them an IM shot. It works beautifully. If you need to give them ketamine, you can put ketamine up their nose. If you need to give them midazolam, midazolam will go through. So you can sedate a kid for some procedures. You can get pain relief for a child. You can get enough to get you started for if it's a really short procedure uh, to give some enough ketamine up there. But if you have to do something like fix a fracture and whatnot, probably still going to have to go with either IM or um, IV. But if you have to start the IV, it's a whole lot nicer. What we'll do now is um, if we can't get an IV in a child within you know a good you know two to three tries, they get some ketamine. Um, and this way, you know, a couple of things happen. Number one is they relax and it's a lot easier to put the IV in, but at least they're not being tortured, you know, by you know, multiple people try for it. All right. Well, I really appreciate it. Of course, wonderful advice from Dr. Sacchetti. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, if you need to contact me, hey, let's, let's see. How do we get in touch with you? If people want more information on pediatrics. Uh, anybody who wants to get a hold of me can get a hold of me in my email. It's S-A-C-C-H-E-T-T-I-1011 at gmail.com. All right, Sacchetti1011 at gmail.com. You can contact me at ryanstantonmd at gmail.com. That's ryanstantonmd at gmail.com. I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton. This has been some ASAP Frontline.